Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. There are so many other people who are negatively impacted by something like this. Nate's family, Brett's family, to everybody, right? So, you know, it's like a, you throw a, throw a really big rock in a pond and it makes pretty big ripples and they don't just they don't just go one way, they go every way. What you're about to hear are two unscripted sessions with a grief therapist and a psychic medium. Neither Claire nor Fleur had any contact with the participants before their sessions. They were screened by me, Elizabeth, one of the producers of the podcast, in order to preserve the integrity of a psychic reading. Absolutely no information was given to Fleur before their psychic session. This is Moving Beyond the Podcast. My name is Fleur. I've been working as a psychic medium for over 10 years. I have sat in front of 15,000 people to give them readings. I connect people here in the physical world to something they can't see, to their loved ones on the other side. And that, to some people, is a really spooky, crazy experience, but to me it's my everyday life. And I find that many people come to see me for a variety of reasons, either curiosity, wanting to see if it's real, or the deeper layers of grief, closure, healing, a way forward. A question that plagues people over and over again after a loss is, is my loved one really gone? I think mediumship can be an incredibly powerful tool towards healing, but it certainly is not the only one. I often send my clients to grief therapists afterwards, but I was thrilled a few years ago when I started hearing from my clients that doctors and psychiatrists and therapists were referring me. That was crazy to me. I always thought psychic mediumship was super taboo and super weird, and how could a doctor possibly recommend something so out there? But I was thrilled that people started to see that it's a real healing modality. One of these people was Claire Bidwell-Smith, a grief therapist, and she is also the author of three books on grief. I lost both of my parents by the time I was 25 years old, and it was a really deep and humbling experience, and it's what propelled me into this field. Whenever I tell people what I do, they usually take a step back and shake their heads. I think they imagine that it's really depressing and heavy, but it's not like that at all. Yes, it can be sad, it really can, but mostly it's beautiful and uplifting and I find myself reminded every day about what makes humanity so special. We work in very different ways. She is a grief therapist, I'm a medium, but we see people at the same point of life. We find them in moments where they are at deep loss, grieving, not able to move forward, have questions that they can't seem to move past. Where are they now? Can they see us? Can we still communicate with them? The first time a client told me that they'd been to see a psychic medium, I was a little baffled about how to respond. I'd never seen one myself, and I felt really skeptical about the idea. I saw over a dozen psychic mediums in that time period, and no matter how good the medium was, I still found myself wondering if it was real. 
After a while, though, I stopped caring if it was real, and I finally decided that what was more important was how it made people feel. A good session with a psychic medium can turn things around for someone who is lost in their grief. I've seen it time and time again. I could have a client who was completely stuck, like doing all the right things, allowing themselves to grieve, working through their emotions, reviewing their relationship with the person they lost, going to grief groups, making amends, you name it. But still, they'd be stuck about something that happened with the death or some unresolved aspect of their relationship. And after a good mediumship reading, they would come away with a completely new understanding. They'd come away with a feeling of connection to their loved one and often a bit of closure. We wanted to share that experience with you, give you the opportunity to be a fly on the wall in the grief therapy session where someone is able to express and explore how their grief has shaped their current life. And then we transport you to a mediumship reading, a moment where you get to listen in on what a reading is and does and some of the answers that people can receive and do receive. We hope that some of the information that arises can help you too. No matter where you are in your stage of grief or loss or curiosity about the things we can't always see. So I'm about to do my session with Eric and I'm actually a little apprehensive. This is going to be an intense story to hear. My name is Eric Jensen. And I think the reason that I'm doing this is I want people to, who have experienced loss um, on, on sometimes a, a permanent scale to know that there is, there's healing that is available knowing that many times the, the perpetrator of a crime is totally aware of that and, and is desperately seeking a way to make amends, even if it's um, not possible to bring you know, somebody back. I think, that, I think that that can provide tremendous you know, catharsis or healing. So just that knowledge that that's possible, I, I think that it changes you know, somebody's life and, and allows them to actually heal and overcome it. Hi. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Well, Eric, it is nice to meet you under these virtual circumstances. I would love to have you just start by telling me your story. Okay. So when I was, so I grew up in a nice family and, uh, you know, kind of had pretty good moral compass, but um, I was definitely like headstrong and I just really couldn't be told anything. What age? Your teenage years? Yeah, probably like between anywhere between like 14 and 16, 17. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, we played in a punk rock band. One of my friends told me about this kid, Nate, that he was, that he was working with at a pizza shop and said he could play guitar the way that we play it and play the music that we play. It wasn't more than a couple months into our our friendship that I realized that there were something seriously wrong in his home life. Like, and slowly but surely, like we we basically realized that he was being abused, and that there was a lot of pretty pretty bad stuff happening there. Mm-hmm. And we went through it with with calling social services, run away, running away, calling the cops, what have you. But it just didn't really work. Mm-hmm. Basically, like social services, like we're just not cut out to deal with sixteen-year-old boys. Mm. Like you know, we're 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 you know we're suited for for kids and like abused girls and stuff like that. But like sixteen-year-old boys, like we just don't have it. Like they can kind of take care of themselves, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So uh, basically, it kind of just came came to a head, and one day Nate had probably reached his breaking point, and he and his mom got into a fight, and. I walked in to the apartment. I was supposed to pick him up to to leave, probably to run away again. And I walked into the apartment right as they were in the middle of a really, really bad fight. And so I was I was actually in the apartment while this happened and, and what it turned out to be is that it turned out to be a murder. 
Wow. So he killed her. Yeah. And, and I was, I mean, I was right in the middle of it. Like I was like, I just, for whatever reason, I just walked in. I didn't walk out. I just walked in. And then while it was happening, you know, I was definitely, I was definitely an accomplice to it. You know, I, I didn't want my friend to go to prison and I didn't want, I didn't want him to get hurt anymore. And so I was definitely, definitely an accomplice to that. I'll leave the serious details out, but it was bad. It was a bad scene. How old were you and Nate at the time? I was 17 and Nate was 16. Wow. So, yeah, what happened next? So basically, you know, we tried to we tried to cover up our tracks, not not well. And Nate got arrested that night and about 2 days later the cops came by. Basically, they knew that I was involved somehow. Um they weren't sure how, but they knew I was involved. And me and the other kid that actually came over and helped us, you know, clean up stuff. We actually he and I got into a car and ran to Mexico. Wow. I finally called my dad and I was like, hey, here's what's up. Here's what's going on in my life. And, you know, he knew because the cops had come by my house and try to, you know, arrest me. And he was like, you got to face the music, man. Like, you got to, you know, you're going to have to come back here and we're going to fight it. We'll help you. But, like, it's the saying something that you walk away from, mm-hmm. which is true. And I, and I knew it was true and I heard it. So I came back and I turned myself in. Wow. How many years ago was this? This was in 1998. Okay, so over 20 years ago. Yeah, and so they charged me as an adult. And so I was looking at like between like two to six years, something like that. Mm -hmm. Not too long after that, the other kid that I actually ran to Mexico with um, decided to start to testify. And uh, they upgraded my charge to murder. So it's complicity. So like basically if you're you're part of a, like if you're an accomplice in a murder, it's the same as if you committed the murder. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they upgraded my charge basically to first-degree murder. And about a year later, me and Nate both got convicted of first-degree murder, and they sentenced us to life without prison, or life without parole. So basically, you die in prison. Mm-hmm. And that's where we went. And I remember hearing about Brett, who was the kid that, that testified against Nate and I. And he had gotten immunity, so he, he went home. And I remember hearing from a couple people that he was doing terrible. Mm. Like that he had basically gotten addicted to every drug there was, that he was involved with all the wrong people. Mm-hmm. Then I started kind of looking around at all these other people, and I was like, man, it's not just the victim in the case that is the victim. There are so many other people who are negatively impacted by something like this, That's from true. my family to, and in this case, Nate's family, Brett's family, to everybody, right? So. You know, it's like a, you throw a, throw a really big rock in a pond and it makes pretty big ripples and they don't just, they don't just go one way, they go every way. So that's when I really started to recognize like the, the damage of that, of that action. It's not, it's not just a single moment in time where it's, I did a bad thing to a person and that was bad and that's the damage. It's, mm-hmm. I did a, I did a thing that is having con- con- continuous negative impacts around me. And that's when I realized, like, there has to be a counter to that, right? You can't take those ripples back. Like, they're, they're moving. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can put stuff in their way and they'll go around. So, you know, we started, to, you know, with, with me and a lot of other people that I know, we really started to try to figure out what's the, what's the way that, that we counteract that. And one of the ways is, is by living a life that's honoring to, to the people that you've hurt. I think that's very true. You've had quite a life, Eric. Do I understand that you've recently been released from prison? Right. Yeah, I got out. So I was given clemency by the governor in February of this year. Wow. So I've been in, the, in prison for 22 years. 22 years. Yeah. And one of the main reasons for it is, is you know, um, myself and several other guys that have also done, the, almost every one of them who has a murder case, have made some pretty big strides in there and we run programs that have impacted hundreds of people's lives positively and we run a lot of restorative justice type elements with our stuff that's amazing you know so a lot of that's is kind of why why people took notice of of my situation was there a turning point for you um during these 22 years when you went from feeling like a victim to starting to want to live a more meaningful life and atone for this thing that you had done yeah you know, uh, so early on in my in my prison career, 
you know, like I'm, like I said, I'm from a good neighborhood. I've never really been around gang members or crime or really anything ever. And mm -hmm. things were not looking great. So I, I kind of just went like, for lack of a better term, balls to the wall. <laughs> you know, I, I, I joined a gang and I became like the, I, I tried to make myself the most dangerous dude that I could. Mm -hmm. But at some point in time, I did enough that they had to just put me in isolation. Oh, wow. They they have a thing in, in Colorado. They used to. They don't really have it too much anymore because they kind of got rid of it. But basically, 23-hour lockdown at Supermax. You never see another person. You never see, like, you have no contact with other humans. Like, you have, never see the sun, never go outside, never do anything. I mean, I was there for three years. You were in isolation for three years? Yeah. Wow. How old were you? 21, I think, when I went there. What an experience to have. Yeah, it was crazy. And, you know, really the only thing that kept, you know, I was watching people go crazy in there. Yeah. Um, guys who were like, like named men, right? Like I'm talking about guys who are like high class criminal, basically. Like they're really smart. They're really charismatic. They're, they're fun to be around, but they're, they're up to, they're up to no good. Mm -hmm. And those guys have reputations in the joint. Here I am with these guys. And then every, every so often I'll just see one of these guys completely crack. A guy who's been in the joint 15, 16, whatever years knows how to do time. And he would crack. Mm. The next day, he'd be playing in his own feces, right? He's he's gone all the way. And I was like, oh crap! If that can happen to him, is that going to happen to me? You guys are trapped in a cell with somebody that they hate. Mm -hmm. I was like, am I am I trapped in a cell with somebody I hate? And and I, I am. Like and I and I was like, why do I hate myself? Why do I hate my life? Why do I hate everything about it? And I really just got down to this point where I was like, I'm 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 taking. What I hate is that, I, is that I'm taking. My life is never about giving. It's never about like investing. My life is always about pulling something away from something or somebody else. Wow. And I was like, that's got to change. And it can't just change a little bit. It has to change from the ground up. Like you can't, you can't build on a, on a, on a weak foundation. You got to strip it all down. Mm -hmm. So I spent a long time doing that and started to build it back up. And then I really started looking into doing what I was talking about, like investing in other people and investing in, in, you know, community and situations and stuff like that. And so basically for the last probably 10 years, 12 years of my, of my incarceration, that's, that's what I focused on. When you made that, that internal change and that kind of shift, did you have to face those actions from when you were younger again? Did you have to grieve yeah. for that? Yeah. What was that like? I just, you know, I went out there every day and try to change something in my life or something in somebody else's life. And it was not, not a clean process. And it was not like by any means straight up, you know, it was fits and starts and, and failures and, and what have mm -hmm. you. But over time, you know, it starts to get easier. It starts to get easier and it starts to become who you are. I definitely realized that the hardest thing for me to do is forgive myself. Like I forgave everybody else for everything that they did bad to me. And the last thing that it took me forever to do was to forgive myself. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that goes with that is that, you know, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty heavily practicing Christian. Mm -hmm. If, if God has seen fit to forgive me, then who am I to tell him that that's not enough? If, if he's forgiven me and if other people have forgiven me, then I need to get, I need to get on that train. And so I did, and it wasn't easy, but I did it. And that was a big turning point for me because it was like, like not wearing everything that I'd ever done as an anchor. And yeah. And the reason that's that amazing. that's so hard is is you feel like you feel like it's a betrayal, right? Like I would feel like it's a betrayal to Nate's mom and anybody else that I hurt to forgive myself, right? Right. So you, you have to free yourself from it and and then just go forth and help, you know, where you can and and just hope that it's enough, you know. That's incredible to hear. I the thing I hear more than anything with people that I work with is is the same block of not being able to find compassion for themselves, not being able to find that self-forgiveness. It's right. it's like the one place where people get really stuck. And so they hold on to this guilt or anger or whatever it is, because it does, it feels like a betrayal to them if they let go of it, you know? Right. And I, I see it as this place where so many people get stuck. And I talk all the time on the show with people, with clients about self-compassion. And it's really the number one hardest thing for people to achieve. Yeah, it absolutely so is. It's, it's amazing that you got there. But I think, you know, you make such a good point that it's, it, it's not, 
it's not a betrayal because you're not, you know, you're not saying it was okay that you did what you did, but you're saying that you don't have to carry that forever and that you can do good things in your life and you can live a meaningful life. And I think that that is the important, you know, discrepancy there. Yeah. And that goes, you know, that goes both ways, right? Like, you know, there's, there's lots of people who like, I'm sure I'm positive that if, you know, if Julie was still here, that she would not be who she was, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's not just means that I got to go harder. Mm-hmm. Like you, like you're, you're basically, you're doing it for yourself, but you're also doing it for, for her, right? Yeah. So what is life like now, now that you're out of prison? It's pretty good. I like it. Obviously, I'm, I'm very happy and very thankful to, to have it. The world is like, I barely remember the world just because I was so young when I went to prison. Like, you know, I got really good support structure and I've been planning on this for a long time. Like, you know, I've been getting my mind right for it and everything else. Mm-hmm. I'm not living in a thousand by thousand fence, I'm living in a 25,000 by 25,000 sphere. Right. What are you working on? What are your plans? What do you want your life to be like now? Like my main foundation points are like the church. I'm a CrossFit trainer, so the community of CrossFit, mm-hmm. you know, I've been working and kind of just touching base with people here and there. But, you know, like for, for me, like all of my friends in the joint, they don't like the guys that I hang out with, like they don't care about having stuff. Like you, you lose your, your, your idea of cool material possessions pretty quick when you live out of a three by three box. What we value is experience, you know, because that's what we've been, that's what's uh, that's what we don't have mm-hmm. going to new places seeing new people experiencing new stuff like that's i want to make sure that i'm experiencing everything so that when i talk to my friends from in there and they're like hey what are you even doing out there i'm working obviously i'm saving but let me tell you about going to lookout mountain yesterday or let me tell you about being in breckenridge or let me tell you about this new pizza place that i ate at or whatever mm-hmm. so that there's always that a new sense. experience that, that comes with it and it's not about like, oh man, I bought a whatever brand mm-hmm. new shirt. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, material goals must seem really frivolous in that light. So, do you have any expectations for your time with Fleur, your session with Fleur? Uh, not really. I, I don't really have any experience with that outside of seeing like hucksters on TV. So, mm-hmm. no, I don't, I don't have a ton of like experience with people who actually take it seriously. Are you scared about it at all or nervous about it? Not really. Like I said, I feel like I, I feel like I live my life to a, to a pretty standard, a pretty high standard at this point. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like if, uh, if Julie was here that I don't know that she would forgive me or anything like that, but I definitely feel like she would recognize what I'm doing in my life and not be, not be pissed at me for wasting it. Yeah. If you could communicate with her, is there anything you'd want her to know? I mean, obviously that I'm devastated and sorry that, that that happened. I wish that I would have found a way to stop that from happening and that I, that I wish that she had gotten the second chance to, to change her life that I did. I, I wonder what, what it takes to, you know, kind of sort through all of it. There's got to be some level where you maybe felt anger towards her as well and had to forgive her for her path. I really had to deal with because, you know, early on, if you talk to me about it, I was like, look, if you, if you were doing all of these things to your kid, you got, you got that coming. Mm-hmm. And after a while, like I got to this point where I was like, that's not, that's not a true statement. She's broken, just like I'm broken, just like Nate's broken. And so, you know, she's basically the first person that I forgave for, for, you know, what, what her role was with Nate. I'd like to return to your time in solitary. How did you handle that sadness while you were there? I definitely just think that that most of the early part of my my incarceration was was shaped by disappointment, obviously the majority of it in myself. But over time, that kind of resolved itself into basically just sadness that that I was where I was and that I had done what I had done. And it, it really became almost overwhelming for a long period of time i wasn't like like regularly suicidal but there was definitely times when i i for sure was like that seems like a viable option it wasn't just because i was sad that i was in prison it was also still again it was sad that i had done what i'd done 
it was not fun. Like I didn't, I didn't see the sun or, or like have physical contact with another person for three years. So it was weird. When you were in solitary and you had all that silence around you, was there ever a moment that you tried to talk to Julie? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's when I really started kind of going down that road. That's maybe the only thing on earth that, that you're not capable of getting some form of forgiveness or restorative situation with, with your victim. Not that that, not that that never happens, obviously, or not that it always happens in other cases, but it, it ends up being basically like you're having to have that, that conversation in your own head instead of having that conversation with, with another person. It took me a long time. Wow, what a journey you've been on. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your story with me. I can't wait to hear how your session with Fleur goes, but either way, I think it sounds like you are on an amazing track ahead of you and have a really meaningful life to live. Cool. I appreciate you. Thanks for doing your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, I've just finished my session with Eric and... Gosh, you know, the thing that hit home for me more than anything was this idea that I talk about and think about all the time with everyone I work with. And it's one of the biggest pieces of life in general, but definitely of grief. And it's that of self-forgiveness and compassion. I cannot emphasize how important these pieces are in, in order to move through any kind of trauma, any kind of loss, any kind of big thing that we go through in our lives. We have to find ways to forgive ourselves for things that we've done. And we have to find compassion for ourselves and for others. And as horrific as Eric's story is, I think he has done a beautiful job of finding that compassion and that forgiveness and trying to really turn his life around. I hope it continues to go well for him. I'm ready and prepared for my time with Eric this morning taken some time for myself, cleared my mind, and I'm ready to connect him to his loved ones. Hi, Eric. Hey, Fleur. Hey, how's it going? Good morning. Good morning. So, um, have you ever had any kind of reading before? Cannot say I have. Cool. Thanks. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, let me explain a little bit about how it works, what the process is, and then we will get going. Okay. So there will be some time for questions towards the end. Anybody that comes in, you have an opportunity to ask them questions. It is a two-way street. I'll let you know, kind of prompt you when that time is. And if anyone comes in and you go... I know who that is, but I don't really need to spend that much time with them. Let me know that as well. Sure. All righty. All right. Got a, a younger man stepping in here on my left-hand side. Now, the first recognition, are you actually far away from where you would usually live or, like, distanced from your what you would consider home? Do you see that? Yeah. Then there's the other acknowledgement of as he's bringing up the sense of you being far from home, you look like you're going to continue to feel a little unsettled or ungrounded as to like where I live or what I'm doing for at least the next six months. Do you recognize that as well? Yeah. Because okay. um, they're just kind of watching you here and not that you're a gypsy, but that's going to be kind of the vibe, I think, of your next year. Very unsettled. Do, do you see this? Yeah. Okay, so bear with me because there's a lot of stuff um, that's kind of coming in the different directions. So uh, it may sound a little jumpy here at first, but I'm going to get to the, to the, the broader line. Um, so yeah, so residentially, you just look really kind of unmoored. And um, it looks in part on purpose, to be honest. And uh, there's, there's your, your life's going to do a real 180. Um, in, in a two-year period of time, and I think you're right in the middle of it. Okay, I'm just going to start with him here. Um, I do have a younger man who comes in on your age generation. He stands in here on my left, um, and he's the first in line. Uh, the acknowledgement would be akin to the feeling of 
uh, a brother could also be a best friend, but there's the acknowledgement of like a brotherly love there. Do you see that? It's on your generational line. Uh, that's passed. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people who are in, uh, in my life who are not here anymore. Do you see the acknowledgement of sobriety of, so, so I see this younger man, he comes in here on my right. I am seeing the cause of passing would be around like drug overdose or, uh, very much the, the feeling of passing because of drug use. Um, they're acknowledging you as having gone through, I don't know if you're currently in it, but a period of, of decided sobriety. Do you see this? Yeah. Um, like you would currently be sober, like you've made that decision for yourself. Do you understand that? Right. Yeah. And for some reason, it's this man that comes in who wants to acknowledge that journey for you. Okay. Um, he feels like someone who had struggled with it himself and feels to me like he's a good friend of yours in life. Do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. Um, it feels to me that the two of you would have kind of, I don't know if you would have talked about it as being a struggle at the time, but there is the acknowledgement of a a similar struggle between you. And I feel that you get through it. He doesn't. Do you understand that? Yep. He just wants to acknowledge that he's so proud of you, that you've continued forward and the way that you've completely changed your life. Because it feels to me that you've completely undone the world that you were in the process of creating and the future that you were in the process of creating. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like he was part of that time for you. You understand that as well? Yeah. So I'll move forward here with him. This is really his message. He doesn't have that much else to say. Cool. Do you have any questions for him? Not. No, I don't think so. Not at the moment. Okay. We've got grandmothers on both sides, but I don't really feel like I'm being pulled there too much. Although, again, on your mom's side, there's a pretty strong connection to the grandparents, so you must have known your mom's mom as well. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. She really does feel pretty particularly rooted to you. Now, she survives your grandfather on that side. Is that right? Yeah. Um, She looks like an old lady before she goes, and you are a very spiritual person. I see her as being a very spiritual person as well. Do you see that? I think so. Yeah. She comes in, uh, in connection to spirituality, religion, all the rest of it. I know that when she passes, you actually look like you are physically distant. So in another state, in another space, do you see that? Yeah. I was, I was in prison when that happened. Okay. And, um, there's just the acknowledgement of you being elsewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the acknowledgement, I think, of you knowing that she's passing, but not being able to go. You see that? Yeah. So she just wants to acknowledge that. I feel like when she goes, one of the first things that she does is come to visit you. Okay. Cool. Now, she's the one who brings this up. Did you at any point feel responsible for someone else's passing? Yeah. She wants you to know that she prayed for you every day. She continues to watch over you. Um, She wants you to know that prayer does work. It feels important for you to know that. And again, she's also acknowledging here you turning your life around 180, just as your friend did here in the very beginning. So it feels really important that they all want you to know that they've been part of that journey for you. Now, it looks to me like sobriety was part of your prison experience, but it's really after prison that you feel most free or dedicated or able to pursue that. Do you see that? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been a long time. She's just wanting to, again, acknowledge she's seen the entirety of it. She's part of the strength of that in terms of she's, she's one who supports you on the other side, who offers part of that strength when you ask for it. Okay. Yep. It feels like there's a great desire on your end to work with the individual 
who you would feel responsible for in terms of their passing their death. Do you see that? Yeah. Okay, so let's bring them through here. So I'm just gonna clear everybody else away and allow them to take a moment and come in. Okay. Um, so I have to acknowledge that as this person steps in here on my right, feels it's not your intention in the moment that it happens for them to pass. Do you see this? It's like it's not a direct targeted action. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay, this feels untargeted, but a domino effect, you know? Yep. And that's the acknowledgement. It's like, that's not the intention. That's not the act. It happens, however, as a consequence. So they do acknowledge that. Um, would you also see that at the time of this person's passing, there's another person there either as witness or another person involved, but I keep seeing three people as part of this rather than just two. Yeah, that's correct. And I think this goes back to the conversation of sobriety before, but I don't feel that this scenario is void of substance. There's some sort of indication of substances are at play, involved. They play a role in all of this. Do you see that? Yeah. And I would say the person that passes is also not void of that either. They're recognizing their own life choices to have placed them in a position where they are actively using or somehow affiliated in a way that places them in that in that moment, in that place, in relation to you. Do, do you see this? Yeah. This feels important. That That's a very important recognition because they're acknowledging you to, yes, take fault with yourself, take blame, take responsibility. It feels like that's a really important conversation that you've had with yourself and one that they also acknowledge. And in part, they show me forgiveness for that, but also the acknowledgement for themselves of taking responsibility for finding themselves in the place that they were at that time. Okay. Yep. Do you see here also with her, like illegal activities surrounding her at the time of coming in interaction with you? Do you see that? Like there are, there's illegal acts there or illegal practices that she's also been involved with at that time. Do you see that? Yeah. Okay. Because this feels important. I'm going to just let her sink into my body here for a second. Um, the way that works for me is uh, right now she's on my periphery. So I'm having like a conversation with her. And if she comes in a little bit more, she can blend and I can kind of see things from her perspective or like her memories and, and just kind of give her permission to do that because... Okay, 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 okay. Um, you see that the part of the reason that she passes is because um, emergency services aren't called in time. You see this? Um, yeah. It feels like there's a delay in emergency services. Like she could have survived had they come in time. But I also feel that the people responsible for calling those services are not in their right frame of mind at the time. I mean, yeah, to a, to a certain extent. I, I, I guess I don't know if she would have survived regardless. Okay, but you see that they're not called immediately. You see? Yeah, they're they're not called at all. Okay, got it. Because it, it just feels to me like in this passing, I don't see people alerted to the fact that she is dying or dead. And I also want to just acknowledge that the people in, you know, when, when I was talking about, I see three people here, uh, people aren't sober. Do you see that? So I'm just looking at the facts of it right now. So uh, bear sure. with me. What's interesting about this on her account is she's wanting to give me the information in a way that we kind of solidly understand where this is uh, coming from, what the story is. And there's just, uh, there's, there's, n I want to make sure that you, that you understand. I don't feel any uh, uh, judgment around this from her, any hatred, any anger, any, it, it's just facts. All right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just looking at the facts of the case and I know you can handle it because it feels like you 
you're grounded and you can handle it. So I'm kind of working with you in a way that I would ordinarily work with detectives rather right. than with like the family of a victim. Right. Or, okay. sure. do, do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. Um, because my other indication is one, I see no emergency services being called. Two, uh, no one declares her missing for some time because I don't see that she has those kind of connections to family or friends. Do you see that? Yeah. So she is missing, quote unquote, but no one's really looking. You understand that as well? Yeah. And again, the events of her life that bring her to that place, I think, are really quite sad um, and have nothing to do with you. Uh, they're they're outside forces, I think, at one point. I don't know if you know this, but at one point, there's some sort of sex trafficking that's involved with this as well. Okay. Um, and again, that has nothing to do with you, but it puts her in that place at that time, in that moment of space and time, you know? Yeah. That's, that's what leads her to that place. That's why she is there on that day in that environment. I see a lot of impact to her stomach at one point. Do you see this? Yeah. Okay. So cause of death does look like there's uh, internal bleeding. Do you see that? Um, I mean, I'm sure that that was, I'm sure that that happened. Yeah. Okay. Do you see that she also, her body gets, uh, uh, again, her abdomen gets hit in some capacity. Do you see this? Yeah. Okay. And I see a cart that leaves abruptly or leaves the scene. Do you see this as well? Um, I mean, at some point, yeah, that happened. Okay. Like, do you, after this happens, do you get in a car and drive away? Do you see that? Yeah. Okay, that's what I'm seeing. You know that at the time of her passing, her mother is living in the world. Do you see that? Yes. And do you also see that after her passing, you had an opportunity to either see her mother, connect with her mother, talk. There's some sort of communication there with her mother. Um, I didn't have an opportunity to speak to her, but I did see her. Okay. There's the acknowledgement of you meeting her mother or seeing her mother or being in, in proximity. You see that? Yeah. Okay. So as she comes in, it's a really interesting feeling because it's actually quite neutral towards you. I don't feel anger. I don't feel hate. And there's a sense of neutrality and understanding, I think, that you have changed the entire trajectory of your life in a way that you now do a lot of good because of her. So she feels like she gets to be part of a journey for you that actually leads to good. And that feels really powerful. I'm wanting to acknowledge for you that I think that you have prayed to her or reached out to her many, many, many times. Do you see this? Yeah. She wants you to know that she has come to be with you during those times. And there is forgiveness there. I want to acknowledge that, like real true forgiveness, because you've gone to the very deep ends of your soul to acknowledge it and work through it and find that space and relief within yourself. And she's happy to offer it to you as well, wanting you to know her life does continue. And also that it doesn't look like you ever went on to take another life. Do you see that? Yes, I do. She's grateful for that. That feels really powerful. And you feel a calling to help others now. Do you understand that too? Yeah. Do you know if that person actually took a wallet of hers or took something that had identification? Um, he may have. Um, would you also see that initially when you get caught for this or when, you know, police track you down, he, there's an unfairness in the way that the two of you are treated. I see some sense of 
I would say from your vantage point, maybe he's the one who actually causes a passing and you're just there to witness it. Do you see this? Um, yeah. You're not in connection with him. Is that right? This is, this is somebody that you've disconnected from entirely. Uh, yeah. There's another person that's connected to him on the other side. But from your perspective in that moment, he's the one who causes her passing in terms of he is the one who causes it. You are just a witness. You see that? Yeah. Although, to be fair, I would say I did more than witness. Oh, I agree. I agree. And she agrees because she places you both on equal blame. But all the same, I think when it came down to a sentencing, he gets much more or is seen as the initiator. Yeah. What she feels most connected to now is the ability to see you have made that jump and she commends you for that. You know, that feels, feels big. Cool. Um, you see that there's a moment uh, after her passing. I don't know if you remember this, where you wake up and you feel as if someone's touching your face. Do you see this? Um, I'm not sure. Okay. She talks about having touched your body before from the spirit side, touched your face, like a moment in which you felt your face touched. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, good. No worries. Okay, let's ask her some questions. What questions do you have for her? I mean, I really, I think that the only question that I have is, is uh, just want to know that she's doing well. She's almost wanting just to give you permission to live the life you need to live and want to live in the fullest capacity. Having love, having children, passing on that love, you're completely capable of it. And she wants you to have it. Okay. Um, at one point, you're going to speak. I don't know if you've done this already. Speak to large groups. Um, speak to young people. Have you done that already? Yeah. She's with you every time you do it. She joins cool. you on stage every time. And it feels necessary. And it feels like it will continue. And there's power in it. And you're making a difference. And it will continue to grow and grow and grow. You will have your own organization within that. I don't know if you already have it, but there's there's a platform that you step into over the next 10 years that she wants to be a part of. Okay. And it gives meaning to her life as well. Nice. Okay. Any other questions for for her? No, I don't think so. As as, uh, As long as she's doing good, I'm cool with it. Yeah, no, she's good. All right, so um, do you have any other questions for me? Anything else that we need to look at? Um, not off the top of my head. Okay, all right. Thank you for being so open. And yeah, absolutely. I hope it helps for what it's worth. I think you're really moving into a space in which you have a voice and a platform and. I would say to you every time you step into that space to call forth the power of people past Um, because every single person that's come in here is really acknowledging you to have a life that's bigger than your own self. Yeah. You can have the, the joys of life, all of them. You're welcome to them, but your platform is bigger than that. The young man that stepped in here earlier talked about your sobriety. Your grandmother is acknowledging it. And then this young woman is coming in as well. All really wanting to let you know that you have the power to tap into that because you've worked through the shadow self into a space of clarity. And that is something you can use to work with people to create a similar trajectory because you can touch both sides. Cool. I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Wow. Eric's reading was unlike any I have ever done before. In this case, we were connecting to Julie, and 
Julie passed because of Eric's actions, which makes the reading incredibly unusual for me. I connect people to their loved ones on the other side. And in this case, Eric didn't really know Julie, except that their lives became intrinsically intertwined by the actions surrounding her passing. What was most amazing for me in the reading was just the sheer level of forgiveness and neutrality around the event itself, as well as the incredible feeling that every time that Eric speaks about it, moves his life forward, helps someone else, that Julie is right there with him. I think it speaks to the power of the spirit. I think it speaks to purpose and connection and the fact that those who have a voice in the world are simply not doing it all on their own. Um, I was very inspired by Eric and I am really honored to have gotten to be a part of this experience for him. Thank you for listening to Moving Beyond. If you haven't yet left us a rating or a review, we would greatly appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the show. Moving Beyond is an independent podcast produced by Fleur Lissink and Elizabeth Mihalich, edited by Darwin Carlisle. Original music composed and produced by Lucas Tuttle. Our hosts are Claire Bidwell-Smith and Medium Fleur. You can learn more about Claire at her website, www.clairebidwellsmith.com C-L-A-I-R-E-B-I-D-W-E-L-L-S-M-I-T-H and more about Fleur at www.mediumfleur.com M-E-D-I-U-M-F-L-E-U-R If you're interested in being on a future episode of Moving Beyond, please send Elizabeth an email at podcasts at mediumfleur.com P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at M-E-D-I-U-M-F-L-E-U-R.com big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big